Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. One thing that's been on my mind this week, I actually have a piece coming out tomorrow in Yes Magazine about, um, I've been knitting a, a coronavirus death toll blanket. Um, wow. Just like as some way to sort of feel this like humongous loss that I think isn't palpable in most of our daily lives mm-hmm. as we're just stuck at home. Yeah. And uh yeah, like, so I've been keeping up with the daily global death toll because I, I do different, like I do a row of stitches every day for the number of deaths globally. And I saw as of like the 26th that we're finally back down to 3,000 a day. Um, and we haven't been that low since for four weeks. So, I mean, just to me, it looks like we're pretty obviously at the end of this curve. But then I keep hearing about like second waves being like kind of historically just like a given. And I just, I don't know much about that. Has have any of y'all done any reading? Admittedly, not as much as I should have probably because of grading, but I, I think the eminence of it happening is not only on the horizon, but it's definitely concerning, not only from the course preparation standpoint as we get ready to move to the fall, but I think also in the way that information is being communicated and then by extension, whether or not like communities and populations are willing to do anything about it. Right. I'm getting the hunch that in different communities I'm a part of on Facebook, a lot of individuals think, it's going to be one wave, things are going to be back to normal in May, and life resumes as it usually does. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case with this one, you know? It it seems pretty evident that we're actually not through the first wave even. I mean, we bent the curve by keeping people in once we let people out. Um, And if you reopen things the way they're doing in Georgia, you're going to see this is the same wave. Mm It's just it ha- it's going to start exploding again and we'll start to see it climb. It's not like it's burned through the population and people yeah. have either gotten it or not. There is a lot of naive population there, um, you know, virally naive uh, uh, subjects who are going to be exposed. And then, you know, probably there'll be a second wave in fall unless we can get the, you know, vaccines or other kinds of things that people are talking about. That's what I keep thinking about too. I think I this actually has been a really like emotionally challenging week for me for some reason. It kind of hit me emotionally 
This week, and I think a lot of the reason was just kind of realizing the timeline we're looking at and, you know, just kind of thinking like, this doesn't just end, you know, like we don't, until we have some way to produce immunity in people, right? Like until we have a vaccine or something, we're going to keep dealing with this. Like, why would it be different if we all just come back out? It won't be different. Like, I think it just, it like, I knew it on an intellectual level, but it really hit me. Yeah. So, yeah. And I know some things we can do, you know, I've been thinking a lot about contact tracing and networks and the way that we kind of can keep track of and, you know, build, build the infrastructure to keep track of, of people's contacts and, and manage it in that way. Um, but yeah, it seems like we're going to be dealing with this for a while. Like you said, Pamela, there's, you know, even if, even if there's tons of asymptomatic spread, even if there's more than we thought, you know, we're still talking about like maybe 25% of the population being exposed, you know, even on the way higher end than what people really think it is so that's still 75% of the people who, who haven't been exposed right. so. yeah and I, like I know I, I talk about this all the time but like what's the best way to get this information to the public right yes. uh, Jen your your comment about time and the temporality of it all made me laugh because just earlier this afternoon one of my buddies was joking with me about a haircut and he goes, well, I guess it doesn't matter because no one's going to see me for the next six months, maybe even until next year. And I kind of thought for a minute and I was like, you know, but it's, I know right? it, it kind of, I told him it hit me like a bag of bricks, but I mean, it's, it's one thing for us to have these conversations and this awareness and this consciousness of it all. And then it's another thing that I've been thinking through, particularly as my students and I have been talking about health campaigns and health information over the last few weeks, like how can we communicate this information to the public in a way that's effective, but not fearful or hysteric, right? right. We know that the second the fear appeals get a little too high or the hysteria starts growing and then we have the resistance. And, you know, I'm also right. thinking about this a lot in um, a Houston context, which is where I was born and raised, because starting tomorrow, a lot of the restaurant industries there are going to start opening, I think, up to a quarter of their mm -hmm. actual like in seating dining mm -hmm. um, segments. And I have a lot of family members in the restaurant business. So I'm concern not only for them and their health and well-being but also for you know like how how effective is the percentage measure going to be in reopening industries and, mm -hmm. and life returning to normal if it even can at this point leah let me ask you about that because i was reading an interesting uh twitter thread <laughs> actually yeah. um someone in the restaurant industry who was saying that it it actually is going to be more damaging for a lot of restaurants, especially small restaurants, to open at 25% because you still have to have the full expense of running your kitchen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 25% of custom is not enough to support the margins that these um, institutions rely on. And, you know, she was saying that basically reopening the restaurants means that the servers who work for, you know, $2 and something an hour plus tips and all the other people who work there cannot get um, unemployment. You know, they can't get paid for unemployment. 
Mm -hmm. but then it's also not economically viable to actually open at 25%. What, what do you think? Yeah, that's so I've been having a lot of conversations with both my dad and my sister about this over the last several weeks. Um, both of them are in operations and human resources. And my dad's been in the um, restaurant industry since like practically the 70s. Right. So this is what he knows. And at first, I remember he told me that um, they just shut all the restaurants down because at that point, it wasn't really economically viable for them to stay open, even with DoorDash or Grubhub or people just coming in and taking food to go. Um, but they've since opened a few more recently. And then my sister told me that the restaurant company she works for, they're going to kind of do a pilot test with four locations mm -hmm. out of, I think, almost 30. And that tomorrow they're going to open up and see how it goes. But I mean, it's it's uncertain, not only from the public health perspective, but also the economic perspective as well. When you have, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, anywhere from 20 to 30 locations, um, but it's not just the financial considerations associated with opening and operating, but then also personnel too. So, yeah. you know, and I was actually talking with my sister about this from um, a hurricane perspective, right? Because mm -hmm. in Texas, hurricanes are what we know and it's what we experience. And she told me that um, at one of her recent meetings, because since she's considered essential, she's still been going to work this entire time like normal. Uh, she said for them, they felt like it really was unprecedented that when Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Harvey happened, even then the restaurant industry she felt was in better shape than it is now. And I think it's it's the uncertainty associated with the pandemic angle, which is making it really hard for them from a planning perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a customer, I don't want to necessarily go in and sit with a bunch of other people who are not wearing masks because they're eating. Yeah. In a small yeah. space. <laughs> so that's not attractive to me. You can't really wear a mask when you're eating. Yeah. It'd be hard. Yeah. 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 I've been thinking about this a lot with the restaurant industry, because just because and bars and stuff, especially restaurants that don't sell alcohol, like the, the profit margins are just so small. It seems so challenging to, to last this long and then to even if we have to operate you know if we're looking at a year of operating under kind of abnormal conditions you know what do we have at the end you know like what what's still there at the end yeah it's not even just a few months right it's a potential year if not yeah. more yeah I like this comment and I just found out how to put it on the screen, but it's covering Jen's face and Jen was talking, so I don't want to do that. Look, can you guys see it? Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. a good analogy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, can't seem to, I can't seem to write into or access the chat, but I can see it. I think we're just supposed to talk answers at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we are all like little kids now, kind of mm -hmm. trying to figure out how the world works. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and little kids are probably a lot better at adapting than we are. <laughs> yeah. 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 The little kids are not worried about how they're feeding their families. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of my students asked me, you know, what what do we do? How do we adapt? And I'm like, we're we're figuring it all out together. And I wish I had more answers for you, but yeah. you know, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. And it is so different from something like 
a hurricane or other kind of like weather related disasters where one area is hit and other parts of the country have the resources to help, you know, and we don't, it's different. I mean, there are obviously there are places that are being harder hit, but, um, you know, everyone's kind of struggling. Nobody seems, nobody's got a lot of extra resources, emotional or material to to offer right now. So, right. And And with a hurricane, you have a, you know, a limited amount of time that you have to hunker down and then you can start thinking about rebuilding and we this is a this is a long natural disaster <laughs> really long this is like the dust bowl where you know yeah huge swaths of the economy and ge- and geography of the nation are being remade yeah Oh, yeah. Yeah, it feels like that. I mean, and just, I mean, looking at the numbers, I know, Kari, you said you're doing that quilt to kind of help visualize and, and memorialize. I think that's really cool. I mean, I've I've been having, I've kind of been obsessively watching the, you know, refreshing the numbers and comparing them to other disasters, which I'm sure is a terrible way to process this, but. You know, it, <laughs> There's no handbook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're but it as we go. Yeah, it's hard to think of. I mean, it's hard to visualize. It's hard to think about what those numbers mean. You know, what's the what does sixty thousand people look like? Yeah. You know, and thinking about that, it's more than the, the amount of casualty American casualties in the Vietnam Wars, um, or American deaths in the Vietnam Wars. Yeah. yeah. One way of thinking about it. I don't. I. And then, yeah, I don't know how productive it is, but it's, um, it's something. Well, I think we, I think one reason that I keep wanting to return to these numbers and and wrap my head around them is because there are so many people who are still out in the community, who you know haven't lost anyone personally, who are still saying this is like the flu; it's no big deal. We need to rip everything up, and it's just it's so frustrating. <laughs> Um, how do you how do you communicate with those folks effectively, Leanne? I know that's your whole yeah. <laughs> that's your whole career is trying to figure that out. Yeah, my screen oh. is doing something crazy, but yeah, I wanted Leandra. I wanted to know what you thought about conspiracy theories and stuff. I've been, mm. I've been feeling some frustration even within my own yes. home about that. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we've so I've had so many really good conversations with students in the past few weeks about this because I'm teaching health communication, health common culture, and um, media ethics all concurrently. So it's been really cool to see all of the different connections and threads here. And I do have quite a few students who are on the conspiracy theory bus. And you know, we're talking about like, oh, how thoughts and theories about how the COVID was devised and disseminated as part of a larger government plan. And then they were talking about, um, you know, recent headlines and updates about, was it the Harvard researcher who was arrested? I can't remember which institution it was, but his lab was found to be problematic and all of these other things. So I've been thinking a lot about how, um, 
like how to reach that particular segment of the audience, right? Like how much of the larger American population is comprised of either the conspiracy theory believers or the individuals who are so um, preoccupied with the individual sense of autonomy that they can do as they please. Because um, I think that's, it, it comes down to deciding whether or not like our larger health messages need to focus on maintaining behaviors that we're already doing, right? So those of us who are already practicing social distancing, those of us who are already um, wearing masks and going out very infrequently, or should the goal of a lot of these larger health messages be to somehow shift or modify the beliefs or the perceptions of the intentions of the self-identified naysayers, right? And like, Amy, your your comment about how we don't have a handbook and making sure we're more prepared in the future, like my idealistic brain really wants to know about what these conversations are looking like behind the scenes, right? Like how are they developing these health messages? How are they getting disseminated and to who? Because maintaining social distancing practices and then trying to get individuals to stay home and stop protesting, those are two totally different knowledge bases and two totally different target audiences, right? So. Um, I finally finished that article I've been mentioning a couple of weeks now for American Lit and where I ended up going with it in through working with Priscilla Wald, who's done a lot of work on Typhoid Mary, um, is actually where I ended up going with this is that like, so when we have, well, there's a lot of public health debates, right? That are essentially arguing about the rights of the individual versus the rights of the common good. Yeah. And vaccination makes that clear, right? Um, the right to consent about what's happening to my body versus the rights of bigger needs. Mm -hmm. And when you have a healthy carrier situation like we did with Mary Mallon in 1907, what I end up arguing is that the science communication issue goes beyond rights against rights conflicting with one another, but lived and embodied realities conflicting with one another before you can even get to the conversation of whose rights take preeminence. Because if you, when you tell somebody like you don't feel sick, but you might be sick, you probably are sick, you're asking them to deny the sensory evidence of their own body and supplant that for a larger authority system. Yeah. Science. And, and honestly, that's a big ask. Like if we try mm -hmm. to imagine anything, I cut this part out of the, the article, but if Make you try to imagine similar that's depoliticized, like your doctor needs you to believe that your chronic headaches are imaginary because your neighbor needs your headache pills. Yeah. If we made it a different issue like that, then I think we can understand why we have a subset of people that are protesting about the rights infringement because they don't believe in the reality we're promoting. And so, for, and, and I say in the piece, I'm like, I don't know the answer, but I know like admittedly, I've spent my whole first book written in Pamela's series being like, we just have to care about the common good more. Like, and, and so I'll be the first to admit, I fall back on that argument a lot. But I think really we have to start digging deeper because I think it's not that Mary Mallon didn't care, although that's the narrative we promote, like the popular narrative is she didn't care she was killing people. But 
I think it's that she didn't believe she was killing people. Yeah. Kari, your your point about the you know the the pills and denying like our own sensory knowledge about ourselves, right? The the thing that keeps popping up in my head, experiential knowledge, right? Like this whole sense of autonomy and bodily expertise and medical encounters that I think is so central to this larger conversation. And I, I really appreciated um, you pointing that out as like one of the biggest potential sorts of, of breakdowns or miscommunication here, right? Like how do you tell someone, hey, you could be a carrier, wear a mask. It's not about you, it's about everyone else. When the individual is saying, I'm able-bodied, I'm healthy, I'm making good decisions, don't imply that my own knowledge and expertise about my body and its operations is not accurate, right? And I think when you couple that with larger um, larger considerations of and doubts about our political system currently, you're right, it is a huge ask. It's, it's a huge jump, I think. Like if the government is saying you have to wear a mask or you will be fined because you could be a character or a carrier, mm -hmm. it's all of these coulda, woulda, shoulda possibilities. And I think not something that an individual can really tangibly see or feel, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. We got a um, comment in Spanish, Leah. Do you want to help us out? Yeah. Okay. Let me scroll up a little. No, I showed it. It's on the screen. Do you what, see it? What can I hope for or expect? I'm a woman of 74 years old. How much time? Oh, like time in lockdown? Uh, or, or like time in uh, social distancing? Okay, Pamela, I didn't know you spoke Spanish, by well, the way. I know. Uh, I read. A little. <laughs> wow. I'm impressed. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a valid question and a valid concern, particularly because of how right off the bat, um, early news discourses immediately started identifying individuals in that particular age range as being at the greatest risk. And on the one hand, from a public health information perspective, I thought that that was very valuable just to have as a bit of information. But then I thought it was really interesting to see how that was flipped to see younger generations thinking that they were somehow immune or less likely to die, right? So mm -hmm. um, in terms of how much time, I wish I had a better answer. Yeah. That's what's so horrible about all this. Nobody knows, not none of the experts, you know, it wouldn't matter if we were epidemiologists, They, you still don't know. Yeah. And Trin, I think, um, I think your comment, Trin, is um, really concerning from the slippery slope perspective, right? Um, I, I saw signs from a protest recently where um, protesters were likening social distancing and staying at home to being in slavery. And you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the slippage between social distancing as a public health recommendation likened to concentration camps or internment camps or slavery um, I don't know what that's going to look like as it chains out, like in our larger narrative, but I'm definitely um, concerned about that, particularly because, as you noted, it creates such a stark binary between immunocompromised and healthy, healthy, but what are we socially constructing as healthy in this moment if individuals are carriers and they don't even know it? Right. Well, also, we don't we don't know. I mean, there's some encouraging news out of South Korea that people who had 
recovered and then retested and were tested positive again, that that was not actually, that they were not actually infectious, that those were just right. broken bits of DNA. But we don't really know, and we don't know how long immunity, if there is immunity, lasts. So all of that is still very much up in the air. So to say somebody's immune, what does that mean? You can say that someone's had it, but you can't really say what that means in terms of whether they're safe from having it again. Right, right. Yeah, and that's why I say, like, at least the, the conclusion I came to as I wrote my way into this piece was that we have to start with, like, getting everybody to agree on the same reality. And I, and I think that takes acknowledging what a big ask it is, because I can only see people likening it to slavery or internment camps if there isn't a belief that this definitely benefits all of us. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, maybe I'm giving society too much credit. Like, it's <laughs> hard for me to imagine that people really don't care about other rights. Oh, I don't well, know. I'm probably it, giving it's everyone a difficult to moment to say that, right? Because we are putting people in internment camps right now. Not about this, but yeah. So it's interesting that they would choose that rhetoric for uh, for something that, in mm -hmm. my mind at mm -hmm. least, so obviously is trying to benefit the global world but then they resist that label for something that looks more like concentration camps than anything I've seen since World War II or the Boer Wars. Yeah. And then the actual border camps that we do have right now are nowhere on the radar. Like when we think about um, the American news cycle and how that evolves, it the the border camps are on the radar when there's um, spikes in violence or spikes in abuse. We see a few articles about it currently in our COVID context in terms of concerns about um, it spreading, right? And public health issues associated with how individuals are being kept in the camps and then that's it. And then this in my brain points to larger issues in terms of how like our, um, like our larger national consciousness even thinks about citizenship and rights to life and things of that mm -hmm. nature if because i think that those terms and those phrases are taking on all kinds of new meanings because of the pandemic well it's tearing through the navajo reservations and we're not mm -hmm. hearing much about that right um, the news today was two guards in a um in a immigrant internment camp uh, two guards are dead of COVID, and you know that means that it's loose in the in the general population there. You know that means that there are inmates who have it, um, and the for-profit prison wasn't releasing any information about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we do need to worry about internment camps. I don't think we need to worry about it being around COVID specifically, because um, I don't think that would be in anyone's economic interest. Bingo. At least right now. Yeah. Right. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.